Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast and our Superintendent Series. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Toro. Two things tour pros hate, leaking oil down the stretch and their caddy having to quiet spectators. Golf course maintenance pros are the same, except they worry about literally leaking hydraulic oil and waking up the neighbors with early morning mowing routines. Toro's new Greensmaster E-Triflex series riding greens mower solve both problems. The engine generator model is amazingly quiet in operation while the lithium-ion battery model is virtually silent. Both E-Triflex models carry no hydraulic fluid on board using all electric components for traction, steering, lift, and cutting. This means not only are potential leaks a thing of the past, but noise complaints are too. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor to schedule a demo. All right, I'm really excited about today's episode. I am joined by Medina's Director of Grounds, uh, Steve Cook. Steve joined Medina a couple years ago. He came from Oakland Hills, where he held the same role as Director of Grounds, and before that, he was at the Wakanda Club in Iowa. Steve has had a ton of tournament experience and obviously a lot of experience managing big teams. So it was, it was fun to talk to him about leadership in his career, which has included stops and in even France. So without further ado, here is Steve Cook. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. You manage, and you've managed a lot of young superintendents through your career at, you know, Oakland Hills and now here at Medina. Um, I come across a lot of superintendents with widely different backgrounds. Like you see some of the Michigan State, Penn State turf guys that are, you know, they're basically like, you know, this is what I'm going to do and this is, I'm going to do this. And then you see people with all different types of backgrounds that become great superintendents. In your experience, have you seen, do you... Do you notice differences in people with different backgrounds when when you're working with them? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I I know engineers in turf. A lot of the people that I know were somehow tied to agriculture. They came from a farm background, or somehow they were outside um, and wanted to be outside. And some of them were golfers, right? Grew up, their dad played golf, or the family played golf, and they gravitated. Instead of the golf pro route, they went the superintendent route. But um, I would say most of my circle of guys, somehow most of them were rural. You know, I, go, I, I know guys, assistants who grew up in North Dakota, Minnesota, Iowa, uh, throughout the, even uh, in the East Coast, uh, in New York. I think the rural part of it was a big deal. Like they wanted to be outside or they're somehow tied to ag some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, I mean, you see guys that are machine guys that are, you know, yeah. that start as, you know, they just fix the mowers and then they become superintendents. It, it's it's really one of the things that, you know, you, you think, oh, you know, there's a lot of science that goes into what you guys do. And obviously the education aspects important, but 
the the work experience is also so important. Yeah, I think we're a lot like chefs. If you look at what a chef does at a club, so um, we're like technicians in a way. You know, the chef is a technician, right? So he's got to get he's got to get the recipe of the Bernays sauce exactly right. And I so I have always uh, had like minded relationships with the chefs because what we do uh, for the for the clientele, with the the product that we provide is something that the clientele touches. And with the chef, they obviously ingest it and put it into their body. But um, I think superintendents are detail-oriented in the same way that a chef is de- a good chef is detail-oriented. So I see a lot of similarities between between that and just as a personal preference, I always gravitated towards the chef because they had a product that I, <laughs> that I wanted to partake in. That's a good, I never have thought about that analogy, but it makes a lot of sense because the other thing is like your cooking environment changes and like the, just like with the weather and, and, you know, sometimes like great chefs, you ask them for a recipe and very rarely are they like this much of this, this much. It's like there, there's so much feel that goes into it and maintaining a golf course, like you need to have like your hand, like your finger on the pulse so much of what the golf course needs at that time. Just like you might need uh, if you're, you know grilling something you you know i don't i when i grill i do it all based off a feel but like right so it's more art than science so what we do in in turf is far more art than it is science right the science undergirds what we do and it's like the basis of what we do but it's the same thing as a chef you know he's not putting in the exact amount that the recipe calls for he's dipping his spoon in what he makes and tasting it Mm -hmm. and says it needs a little more basil or whatever we're doing the same thing you know we're looking at the spray program and say i'll bump that up by a quarter of an ounce because the dew point was up by two degrees last night or whatever, you know, so there's so much feel and art that goes into what we do. I think that, and, and you know, also right or wrong chefs and superintendents tend to take the criticism very personally, right? Like That's very the, true. the greens are slow. It's like the chef, you know, the guy says the spaghetti's too al dente, you know, it's the same, it's the same reaction. Well, what are you talking about? You know, I just spent two hours preparing the spaghetti, right? So I think we have a tendency, if we're not careful, to get a little too worked up about we we approach the complaints and the feedback the same. And I think so we have this shared commonality of how we deal with our clientele. You know, and if you it's real if you ever have a chance, go listen to a superintendent and a chef at a bar complaining. Right, bitching about something. Do, might have to do a, a chef superintendent. You should. Podcast. That's as exact. Just let them let, let them start talking about their product, and you'll they'll they'll talk over each other. But what they're saying, the theme is the same. You know, they're complaining about my product, or my product was good yesterday. It's really kind of funny. Well, it's easy to. I think like there's a, a vocal minority, and I get it the same way with when you have an opinion that maybe some people disagree with like the uh, small percentage disagree with, they're going to be loud. And then like you immediately take it personally, which is sometimes like just you you have to learn to like take a deep breath and be like, you know what? That's fine. It's it's okay if not everybody likes this, you know? Right. You have to be able to compartmentalize it a little bit. And if you've got a, um, a strong sense of who you are as a person, I think it particularly as you get older, you're able to say, okay, that's that, that issue is important. And that issue isn't instead of running around with your hair on fire with every single, including the positive feedback, too. I mean, you you get more positive feedback than you get negative for sure. And you have to be able to put that in check also and, and be able to 
you know, know what is important and know what's not. So if somebody's complaining about the salad that you served, you can't, you know, you can't get all worked up over it. You have to be able to recognize whether that matters or it doesn't. So you grew up in central Illinois. You went to the University of Illinois. How did you get to France? Well, that's interesting. Uh, So I was single at the time. I was working at Medina here at the time as one of the core superintendents. And uh, I was I was just kind of, you know, wanted to move at that part of my career. And I thought, well, I'd be kind of neat to live overseas. And I just happened to apply for a job uh, that was in Paris. And I never really gave it much more thought than that. Um, you know, I just thought, oh, it'd be cool to live in France for a while. And lo and behold, they called me. And then at the same time, Robert Trent Jones was, was consulting here. And I met him here. He was doing the job at, in France at Joinval. And so I met him here and asked him questions about it. One thing led to another. The next thing I know, I'm flying to New York for the interview. They offered me the job, and I kind of had to make a choice of what I was going to do. And I had no business taking that job. I was completely unqualified for it. Um, I couldn't speak the language. I was a young guy that really wasn't set on my skills yet, but I did. And, um, man, what an experience. I mean, just just awesome culturally and Personally, it was just fantastic. Go, you don't speak the language. Right. You pack up, you move over there, and then I'm assuming you're managing a team that you can't communicate with. Yeah, no, so we had, uh, as a small crew, so luckily I had an assistant who spoke perfect English, no accent or anything, like perfect English, and he ended up going to Michigan State to get his degree in turf. And uh, we had, I think, 11 nationalities on the crew out of a crew of like 15. I mean, they were from Mauritania and Africa, Algeria, Portugal, France, Spain. uh, And they all spoke some level of French, right? So it was extremely difficult for me to, even from the south of France, I couldn't understand what he was saying. So I took a French course here at the College of Page and just learned the basics, learned how to count numbers, pronounce the alphabet and the pronouns was basically what I learned in six months or six weeks. And then went over there and I just tried to immerse myself in the culture. I made a, the one good thing I did is I made a commitment to try to become French while I was there to immerse myself in the culture and not be the American. So I read the paper every day. Well, I take that back. I would buy the Sunday paper and by Friday I would have the, like the first two pages done. Like I'd get the headlines down and with a dictionary, and then I had no choice but to speak French. But nobody spoke English because when my when my assistant went to Michigan State, he was gone, so I had no translator. So I was forced to learn the language, and it was just the greatest thing for me. You know, I, I, they always said I spoke like a six year old. You know, six year old knows about five or six hundred words. That was about my limit. So within golf, I could communicate with the crew. I could order food at the restaurant. I could get a taxi. I could get a hotel. But if you and I were talking like this in French, I would be lost within 30 seconds. How did that experience kind of shape as your management when you went forward? Was there was there an aspect of being essentially limited with how you communicated with your staff that changed the way you, you would have managed people? Oh, well, nobody's ever asked me that question about that part of it. Um, well, you know, I learned from mistakes, I would say, in dealing with people throughout my career. It's more the mistakes that stand out than anything. But I think what I learned there, the biggest thing that I learned there was to calm down and to slow down. And that, um, 
you know, it's just a slower pace of life. And, you know, the French and probably Europe in general, they work to live mm-hmm. and Americans live to work. That was a big difference I took away over there. You know, I would work through lunch when I got there. And I found out in short order that just doesn't work. You know, so lunches started to be two hours and three hours. And that's a pretty good lifestyle. You know, I mean, so it, it taught me that this 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 strive for perfection isn't maybe the best for your health and for your life. That they're, you know, work hard while you're there. But then if you want to take a two-hour lunch, take a two-hour lunch. And I just think there's a lot of positives about that. It wasn't for me necessarily. I don't know that I would want to do that forever. But there were some great lessons about that. It's I've I've worked, you know, with with this people always ask, you know, like I'm doing what I love, but one of the things that I get hung up on sometimes is I can work from like 6 a.m. till midnight because like it doesn't always feel that much like work. And especially during this stay at home time, I've found like I've worked probably more hours than ever before in my life. But one of the things I've started to do is like in the middle of the day, I take like three or three hour breaks. And it's incredible because you om- it resets you and you come back and you're able to have m- a much more productive afternoon than you would have if you didn't take a break, if you work, work through it. Because like no matter what, if you start to, you know, as much as you even love it, it's going to, your ability to be creative and, and really put out high quality work diminishes the more time you spend on it. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, I remember I took a trip to, they, they actually made me take time off because at that time in France, you could only work 39 hours a week and there were like 25. So there's a mandate you could only work 39 hours. Yeah. I mean, I, I worked more because I was a salaried person, but uh-huh. you couldn't work the crew more than 39 hours unless you had an agreement with the local community. So so I would work, you know, long hours. And, 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 and the guy who owned the company, um, Gaetan, uh, he finally said, like, look, you got to take some time off. This isn't working out. You got to take some time off. So we went on a trip to England and went to the old course. And I never forget walking on the 18th green at the old course. It was closed that day, but I walked out onto it and they had just terrified it. And for whatever reason, this epiphany occurred. And I realized that nobody knew how many hours that guy worked, the superintendent. The place had been there for 400 years, 500 years. It was still there. It wasn't going anywhere. No matter how many hours the guy who was currently there was working. Right. And I don't know why that thought occurred to me, but that was kind of a break point for me about the number of hours I was working. Like, wait a minute, all this stuff is going to be here 200 years from now. You know, I'm one small part of it. And we're better, just like you said, we're better when we're fresh. Mm-hmm. When we have interests outside of what we're doing makes us a more rounded individual. That That's a big thing is how life experiences and doing different stuff can really bring fresh ideas and, and perspective to, to work where you can get so down into a rabbit hole that having balance in your life is so important to keep perspective on stuff. Yeah, balance is a great word. I mean, I just think that's that's just a great word that every superintendent should have on, on their desk, you know, written on the wall, balance, because I think it's so easy to get wrapped up into this perfectionism of what we do and then you start, you know, counting how many molecules of boron are going into the tank and it really doesn't make much difference. And um, 
that's why I, I developed part of the reasons why I developed, you know, interests outside of greenkeeping because what, what are your interests outside? Well, I like to be outside yeah. I mean, in general. So I've always been like a biker and a hiker, backpacking, climbing, um, anything in the mountains. You know, I think, uh, I, I think it has for sure made me a better, better superintendent without question. Do you walk the course regularly? I do. I don't play golf. So I used to a little bit, but I was never really that good, but I don't play golf anymore. So I try to take a putter or a wedge with me and walk. You know, I can, I've got a loop here at Medina that I can see all three golf courses. It's about six miles. So I'll take a putter or a wedge with me, hit some shots, putt around and see. I can see six greens on each golf course on my route, or I can walk one golf course. I try to do that a couple of times a week. What are some things that you've kind of picked up, up on from just walking around that you wouldn't have maybe noticed otherwise? Well, I think if you don't play golf, you got to get out of the golf cart. I mean, if, if, if most superintendents play golf. So I think you either got to play golf, you have to understand the game from a member's perspective, from a player's perspective. That's like critical. And since I don't play, I got to get my feet on the ground. So it's really important to have boots on the ground. It's just different than riding around on a golf cart at 10 or 15 miles an hour. You just don't see everything. So you might trip over a hole in the ground that you just think is a hole, and turns out it's an eight-inch drain tile that had been buried over for, you know, 10 years. And you dig around and you find a new drain. Hmm. You know, I like to walk the edge of the property along the fence line in the woods. Just I like to walk where places that people don't typically walk so I can learn the property line, learn where there's a wet area, you know, where's their sun, where's their shade and, you know, walk in a bunker and see where it's thin or whatever, just to try to get it feel from what are the members seeing from six feet above ground? The members not seeing it at 50 miles an hour in a cart, members seeing it on the ground. So I think it's just really important to walk or yeah. play. Well, I mean, one of the two, if you don't play, you got to walk. You just yeah. got to any choice. I, I agree with that. I, I, I think I pick up more when I walk golf courses than oh. when I play them. Playing's like a endless like chase to your from one shot to the next and walking you just are always looking around and you see so much more stuff. It's it's really I think I, I love walking golf courses. <laughs> Sometimes I like it more than playing. If it, well, if I think I'm you can make the case day. that it speeds up play. Yeah. I mean I think there's a strong case to be made that walking speeds up play. Yeah, have you seen that with uh with I've I've got a buddy who's a who's a member at Olympia Fields and he's been texting me. He's a lawyer. He's been texting me nonstop about how much he's loved this twosomes walking because he he can all of a sudden play in two and a half hours and it's usually four and a half. Have you guys seen the same thing with the uh, with the restrictions here with the pace of play? Yeah, I think it just causes you to be a little more direct. Like you're not driving around everywhere looking at this or that or going over and get a sandwich. You're like walking to your ball. Yeah. and hitting it you know and I, I think uh, I don't know what the pace of play is here since we've been walking but I think I'm hoping that that's like a semi-permanent thing right that more people will go oh wow this this is pretty cool getting out of the golf cart and find a way to walk more I'd love if the pace of play thing uh, holds too where people realize wow it's a lot nicer to play golf when it takes three hours than five you know that would be a great great change in the game because i think that's something that's people have seen across the board during this uh, whole pandemic um so you you had a really small team in france was it was it when you came back and worked at wakanda was it a smaller team or a bigger team did uh, it progress no we had we had a bigger team 
at Wakanda, I want to say, you know, it's probably 20-ish, something like that, low 20s. Um, so, but, but coming from here at the time, even then, back when I worked at Medina back in the 80s, we had pretty good-sized crew. I mean, mm-hmm. not, not like what we do today, but there's probably 50 guys here then. So I was kind of used to the growth and staff numbers that come along with taking on bigger operations. At least I had seen the organization of it. Um, but, you know, Wakanda was just a great opportunity for me. I mean, just wonderful, wonderful people, number one. And as you know, we talked earlier, you know, just a great old Langford and Moreau golf course that hadn't been changed much. Mm-hmm. And um, beautiful piece of property. There were 27 blind shots, as I recall. I think you had 27 blind shots on that golf course, which people today, you know, might complain about. But when did a, they do the, I know there's some new holes out there, um, some changes, right? Well, I think Rulowich did some work there post me. I mean, uh-huh. I didn't do any work there when I was there. Um, so. I can't, I'm pretty sure there was a double green on the ninth hole because the pool was put in. So the, the, there was a new ninth hole that was mm-hmm. built back in the 80s, I think. But pretty sure it's the original routing. Most of the green sites are the original green sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just, you know, you could tell they just perched them on all the high spots where greens and tees and then down below where you couldn't see anything was the landing zone. What was it like uh, maintaining Langford Moreau? I've I've heard I've talked to some superintendents that talk about how difficult the steep slopes are down into bunkers or or around greens. Was it was it something that required different maintenance from your perspective than say the Trent Jones course in France or or Medina? Yeah, I mean there was you know there was more fly mowing and push mowing on those bunker banks, but I, I want to say they only had thirty or forty bunkers. I I can't remember the number now. It's been so long, but. Um, I don't recall it being, you know, outrageously difficult, but obviously the features up around the green sites were a little more vertical and severe because of how they were building them back in that that day with a steam shovel. I just remember what a cool piece of property it was because everything was so natural and it hadn't been changed much, right? The greens are all perched on high spots, and it was just like they showed up on the property and looked at all the high spots and said, okay, we got to put a green or a tee here, and then routed it around that. They had a really, I feel like when I go to Langford, you can see the distinct way of, of draping fairways over slopes too, that makes it even feel more natural where, you know, you're, you're teeing off and you can see the, the green up here, but then you're teeing off over a, you know, a, a big shoulder in the fairway and that fairway just kind of sits right on top of it. And yeah, it's you're, a, you're, you're describing the 16th at Wakanda yeah. or the 13th at, on that golf course, the same, same thing as... The sixteenth of the whole the entire golf hole is on the side of a hill, and at the end is a flat spot for a tee and a green. You know, and it's really pretty cool. It's just unique. You don't, you don't, you know. I remember Tom Fazio when he was building Glen Oaks in West Des Moines at that time, came over and visited it for an hour or so, and uh, I remember him saying on that tour, "I'd love to build a golf course like this, but I never could get away with it." Interesting, but just because of all the severe. Lack of earth moving, number one. None of the landforms were changed, but just kind of dealing with what you had and putting the greens and tees on high spots and play in between. You've, so you've met, you know, spent time with Fazio, um, Robert Trent Jones, Reese Jones. Um, I assume you spent some time with Gil. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about just getting to know what you've noticed about golf architects are they, you know, and their personalities in general. Boy, there's a lot. There's just a lot of variation in personalities. Number one, um, I've just learned so much about golf course architecture from from the best. I mean, I remember when we interviewed Tom Doak at Oakland. Um, 
I'll never forget that dinner because after the interview, we took him down and had dinner. And I just by sheer chance, I sat next to him at dinner. I didn't say anything. But listening to him for an hour, I realized that that man is like a genius. The things he was saying I'd never heard before about land and landforms and green sites and it, the knowledge of architecture and how he saw land just kind of rolled off of his tongue. And I never forget that dinner thinking if I could spend a day with him <laughs> or read his books, I just thought that I, I think at the end of the century, you know, for when it, when this when this century is done, they're going to talk about 200 years of golf and they're going to talk about two people, Donald Ross and Tom Doak. I mean, I just, I just think he, 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 I mean, look at who's working in the field. They all worked for him. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and everybody who's doing work, in my opinion, good work is doing what Tom Doak did when he started with High Point, Michigan. You know, this is starting point. Everybody is following that model. Did you see that golf course? Well, I interviewed there when they were, when, and luckily I didn't, I didn't get the job, but luckily meaning I wasn't qualified for that job either. When I say lucky, I mean lucky for them that they didn't hire me. But I, I just think that the way he, he needs, he gets a lot of credit. I think he needs more. I, I think the tree removal is due to Tom Doak. Lowering costs in golf course construction is due to Tom Doak. You know, people looking at just, just let me look at the land that I have, and I'm going to put a golf course on this piece of property that I'm that I'm building on, right? I just think that thought process is due to him. Yeah, he's uh, he's a brilliant guy. I've spent lucky to spend a lot of time with him. And well, I really enjoy like, listening to it when he's on because I turn up the volume. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, there's the, the there's a nugget there's a nugget on every one of those podcasts you do with him. There's a nugget. I'm always amazed at like the his ability to remember and recall like. Well, things they saw 25 years ago. It's well, here's just, a good story. So during the same interview at Oakland, he comes, he's in the interview, and the interview people are there, the members, and the, there were like, I don't know, there were 10 of us in the room. And um, the introductions are made, and um, they said, well, you know, Mr. Doak, can you can you describe a hole for us, what you might do on a, on a given hole? And Tom said, well, pick a hole. And and they said, well, why, why don't, you know, you, you tell us which one. And, and Tom said, no, pick a hole, any hole, just pick a hole. So the Green Committee chairman said, okay, how about number one? Now, he hadn't been there, admittedly, since 1996 in the Open. And when I saw him on the golf course, he was in a golf cart driving as fast as a golf cart would go before the interview down every hole. He just drove all 18. And he described the first hole in intricate detail. And I mean each, he said, that little dip 120 yards out on the first hole to the left we need to work off that little dip because it flo- I mean, he described the whole hole. And I just thought that was amazing to me that, that a guy could see that in a, in a 15 minute ride around on the golf course. Uh, and I think you're right. He, he, my impression was anyway, I don't, I don't, I don't know him, but my impression was that, um, it seemed like a, a very good memory. Yeah. It's a, uh... Very, very, very good memory. So now for a quick word from our sponsor, Toro. For more than a century with cutting edge turf equipment and irrigation solutions, Toro has had your front nine covered and your back nine too. In fact, Toro's always had your back, period. Toro is committed to your long-term success as Toro pros are committed to their shot. That's down to top-notch customer service from Toro and its dedicated local distributors. 
both of whom are passionate about delivering turf equipment and irrigation solutions that solve real-world problems. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor today. Now back to Steve Cook. With, you know, you talked a little bit about Oakland Hills. It, when you were working at Medina, did you always know you wanted, it, like when you were young, you wanted to go and become part of a big club? Was that always, you know, kind of your intended goal as you as you progress well, in your career? Right. When I was growing up, when I went to school, I just wanted to be a superintendent. Yeah. I wanted to be outside. I didn't really care where I worked. I didn't have any thought process. I didn't even know what the top 100 was. And then I had an opportunity to come here. And it really opened my eyes to what, at that time, you know, in the mid-80s, high-end maintenance and how things were done. And it really piqued my interest. Okay, this is this is the route that I want to go. And then I just had some good fortune from there. You know, I was fortunate to be able to, Moved to to France for that was thirty six holes, and then um, wanted to move back home. Wakanda was was a great opportunity for me, so I was got fortunate there. And then Oakland Hills opened up, and you know the general manager and I at the time, Rick Bayless, kicked you know kind of hit it off, and that was you know wonderful career opportunity, kind of made my career. I mean, Medina really made my career. That was the big step, but the first first one yeah yeah once i once i came here i was kind of on a different path than which I, course did you take care of uh course one course one yeah so it's way different now oh my gosh uh i mean i i think it's and i've told the members this so i'm not letting anything out here that i shouldn't on a podcast but i i do think it's the best course on the property yeah. right now i mean i just think it's he took a kind of a narrow piece of land right it's long long and narrow kind of and use the one singular feature in into its best advantage, and that's that little valley waterway that runs from north to south from Irving Park Road all the way to the clubhouse, and everything kind of works off of that. And I just think the shaping is off the charts good on that golf course. The greens are really good. It's interesting. You never play the same shot twice. Uh, it's a member's golf course that you can play every day and never have the same shot twice. And the greens have some pretty bold contours. So Yep. You, you've got just general interest when, when the pins are different. And yep. there was a lot of um, drainage work, right? There's a lot of stormwater mitigation concerns mm-hmm. when they did the, did the old course flood a lot? Was that? When I was here, it, it was severe flooding and a lot of dead grass when it flooded. So, you know, Curtis Tyrell was the superintendent at the time and he and, and Tom did the, those, both those golf courses. Well, Tom did course one and Reese did course two, but, um, they did some wonderful drainage mitigation. It drains big water really, really, really well. So like the last two weeks? <laughs> the, be- the, be- the best drainage on those two. You know, they stay wet. And, and, you know, with that kind of rain, we've had nine inches in May. So with that kind of rain, they're going to stay wet. But in terms of moving big water off the property, like holding it and moving it, really, really well done. It's really one of well the done. neatest things that I think, like, I, until you've been somewhere where, like, I... I'll never, I was at Riviera and, and I saw a rain once, but then I saw on TV when they had a really bad rain delay and I, they had a shot and I'll never forget it with just the way the water was moving off that golf course into the Barranca. It, it's just unbelievable, like surface drainage at work and seeing waterways move exactly how you want it. It's, it's something that as you understand, I think it's one of the coolest things in golf architecture that it is that. You know, very few people look at or think about when, you know, and obviously like a popular way 
to do it is a lot of people just use basins, but the surface drainage is like the most amazing thing when you're able to figure out a way to just move water from one spot to another. Well, I hope Gil at Oakland, I'm sure he will, will look at that because I used to love to go out in a heavy rainstorm at Oakland and watch the water move off of that golf course. And it still to this day is stunning to me that Ross did that. You could stand on every green and the water would run towards the southeast at Oakland Hills, which was Lasser Road by Five Green, and that's where the creek exited the, wa- the the property. Two Green ran off. I can still see the water running off the front of Two Green. It would come off the front of Two Green and then take an immediate right back to the southeast and go down towards the pond. Nine Green would run straight off the front of it, due east towards the wa- I mean, it was just every single green, the water that ran off the, off of it, within 100 feet, was heading towards the southeast on that property. And I just think that's that's the genius of those guys is they, that that wasn't by accident. There's no way that water was running towards the southeast off of Oakland Hills by accident as Donald Ross did that. And I used to just love to go out there. And st- I, I still like to this day to go out in a rainstorm if it's not lightning and just either walk the golf course or be out on it and watch water run. Yeah. Just for personal knowledge and also tell you where you need drainage, right? Where... where where you need to focus on drainage. And um, you're right, watching water run on a golf course is, especially the older ones, is a lot of fun. I've always wanted to go and watch uh, Chicago Golf's Punch Bowl drain because, like, Rainer had this distinct way of of building that drainage point where everything would just run right out. And I'd love to go stand out there in just a monsoon and watch it. I kind of missed my chance this year. Well, they had to. Yeah. They had no choice. Yeah. Right. So that was always at the forefront of their mind. They knew they had to get water off the golf course. From from your standpoint, I I'm just curious, you know, what when you have a, a point a spot that's not draining well, say it's a low point, what are your different how do you prescribe exactly how you're gonna attack a drainage issue? Well, it depends on the outlet. You know, you have to figure out where the outlet's gonna be first and then how to get it to the outlet. You know, and, and what's the, what's the grade in between where you're where you are and where you're going? So if there's a ponded situation someplace that you know can be a small pond or a big pond, you just got to look around, know where the water runs, and look around and and figure out where am I going with it, and then what's my grade difference between point A and point B, and then try just try to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're trying to drain 200 acres, it's best to bring in an engineer. Yeah. Right. And do do an engineered drainage drawing. But the low, you know, the superintendents are always putting drainage in and you're just looking at bird baths. Where's it gonna go? Where do I have to put it? Sometimes you have to put in sump pumps, mm-hmm. right? To get it over an elevation might be the best way to do it, depending on your power source. But um Yeah, I just think it's trying to move water off the golf course because for a superintendent, the two most important tools are the ability to add water and the ability to remove it. Everything else is secondary. If you can't do those two things, then you're going to have you're going to struggle. Um, so you have to have good irrigation and you have to have good drainage. Your experience at Oakland Hills opened you up to uh, tournament golf, and I don't know how many superintendents have worked with the PGA, the PGA Tour. You worked with here at Medina last year, and then also the USGA. If you notice any differences in working with those organizations, what what each experience was like. Um. Well, I would say a big difference is that for the most part, or I'm, I'm talking in the past, or just more volunteer people you're dealing with with the USGA. 
and with the PGA and the PGA Tour, those are paid staff that you're dealing with from from all across the board. They're paid employees. So you have this shared commonality with a paid employee, right? It's just a different relationship and it's a different dynamic. And with the PGA, you know, Carrie, you're dealing with one person, only one person. That's it for everything. So it's just a lot quicker communication line. So you have to learn that relationship versus the USGA might be a little more complicated web that you're trying to deal with in terms of the communication. And that's okay too. You just have to know going in that's what's going to be the case and not get all worked up if three or four people ask you to do something different. That's it's just it's just the way it works. It's the way committees kind of work. A it's lot the of way time. the committees work, right? I mean, <laughs> it, it's just the way it works. And I don't think it's good or bad. You just have to recognize that going in and not try to, you know, be all panicked about it and just, you know, hopefully you're dealing with, for a superintendent is best if you're just dealing with one people. So the PGA Tour is Paul Vermeulen, who's just a wonderful person and I've known him for a long time. And so, you know, Paul's a guy for me that I can go into the office and have a coffee and have a direct conversation and say, well, you, you can't do that. That's, you know, and he can say the same thing in return because we know each other. And then we leave the office and we have a game plan and it all works out just fine. So I don't know. I, I don't think one's better than the other. I just think you have to recognize the dynamic that you're in and be nimble enough to deal with the relationships. How, how was like your first jump, your first experience in tournament golf? with championship golf versus this last year, like how is your mentality for that week? Cause you hear superintendents talk about that, that lead up that week and there's so little sleep and yeah. you know, so much time. How, how has your approach to that changed over the years? Well, that's a really good question. And thanks for asking. Um, well, my first one was here was the 88 senior open and I, you know, I wasn't the head guy then. So I was, I was really kind of a Lieutenant, but the next one, I think, was the O2 U.S. Amateur at Oakland. Um, and so for the first event, uh, this is also a function of age, Andy, right? I mean, the first event, you know, everything's got to be perfect. And you're you know, you're all worked up about stuff that later in your career you realize have zero relevance to anything, right? So as I've gone along with the tournaments, um, one truism is that it all occurs in the years prior, right? The week prior, you're not doing anything that's going to impact, or the month prior, you're not doing anything that's going to impact the play. You're just trying to maintain what you've got, narrow your focus. So three years out, five years out, your focus is the entire property. You know, for the Ryder Cup, it was 272 acres I was focused on. And then it just narrows down, narrows down, narrows down. And 30 days out, two weeks out, you're inside the ropes only. You're not even looking at anything outside the ropes. It doesn't even matter. It's irrelevant. Just get it off your plate. Don't worry about it. You know, and, and I just think that over the years I've learned it's about the relationships you meet with your, you have with your staff, with the volunteers who come in, with the members, with the governing body. The relationships are so much more important than the turf. You'll, you're, you're, you're never going to remember how fast the greens were on Thursday of the U.S. Open. That's a bragging point in the superintendent's meeting, right? It's irrelevant. What matters is 20 years down the road are the people you meet and having a relationship with them and meeting them for dinner, you know, when you're older down the road and making sure those relationships are solid and you have fun because they're shared memories, right? The, the, the closest memories I have 
with my former assistants and superintendents are the ones you do battle with through the tournaments, you know. So now 20 years later, 15 years after the Ryder Cup, I'm able to go have a beer with those guys and they can, they're superintendents on their own right now and we can have some fun conversations about what happened. And I think, so I think you have to stop and smell the roses. You have to slow down, just downshift during these events. It's not about the grass. The grass is irrelevant. That's what the all the the year leading up to it is about. Right. And then that it makes total sense. It's you know, it's like if you're a tournament golfer and you know, that's I played this US Mid Am a few years ago and I I worked really hard getting ready for it. But when you get there that's when it's about enjoying the experience and remembering everything. It's, you know, nothing's going to change that dramatically while you're there. Yeah. And I, you're either going to have it or you're not going to have it. And, right. you know, there's not much you can do. You can't like, stop the rain, can't stop the floods, can't stop the 100 degree heat index, and nothing you can do about it. You know, so, so in the years prior, you're focused on does it drain right? Are the roadways good? Are all the irrigation working? Are all these infrastructure issues taken care of? Do I have the right staff? Right. Do I have the right people in place? And then, you know, along about, depending on when the event is, 90 days before, you're just trying to maintain what you've got. Don't take on anything. Just maintain what you've got. Have fun. Um, slow down. Relax. Have You know, so considering I'm at the twilight of my career now, not, not at the beginning, my main focus for the BMW was the people. I wanted to make sure that I could, that I could, offload as much of the decision-making and the turf as I could and spend time with the people. Cause I'm at, at this point in my life, I know that down the road, it's going to be the relationships I had with the volunteers. And did I spend time with them? Mm-hmm. You know, cause so many people during the, my prior events, I'll run into them at a meeting and they'll say, you know, uh, they'll remind me of something that happened in the O2 amateur or the, or, or the O4 Ryder cup. And I'll think, Oh my God, I don't even know who this guy is. I don't, I don't remember meeting him, but it was important to them. Yeah. You know, so many of these volunteers who come and work for you during events, the 30 seconds or third, you know, three minutes you spend with them and recognizing that they're there is something that they will never forget. You know, I've said so many guys come to me over the years at a conference and tell me, you know, God, you remember during the Ryder Cup, you said this to me. And I'm like, oh, not really. <laughs> I don't remember that because you're talking to 100 people. You don't remember yeah. those conversations. Well, at this point in my career, that that is really important to me, that the time you give them during the event is far more important than the green speed or the height of the rough, right? I mean, who cares? Nobody cares. The players care. I mean, and you're trying to provide a good product. I don't want to diminish your role as providing a good product, but you're not going to do that the Monday before. No. It's like the same thing they say about cup. players. If you're looking for your swing on Tuesday, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. If you're looking for your, <laughs> your grass on Tuesday, you're probably in trouble. Yeah. I mean, right. You're in trouble. Yeah. I mean, it's so. It's more about the prep work that goes into it from yep. years in advance. Years in advance, not months, years in advance. I, I mean, you know, like I, every event, as soon as we got the event, whatever event it was, the PGA, the Ryder Cup, the U.S. Amateur, as soon as we booked the event, or as soon as it even looked like we were going to book the event, as a superintendent, you're looking at the property. Mm-hmm. Is my drainage right? Where do I need? Where do I need help? 
You know, is my staff right? Do I have the right staff in the shop? Do I have the right assistants here? And I you, imagine when you put infrastructure down, that affects drainage big time. Big time. And especially paving, because paving can help so much with drainage. I mean, paving is, quite frankly, probably one of the best ways to drain a golf course because you've, you've got all the control in your hands, right? You, you, you get the water on the pavement and get it into a drain, right? It runs so much faster off a of pavement. So if you're looking at the landforms and you're going to do any paving, I mean, my gosh, if you spend $100,000 in paving, you want to spend close to that in drainage right at the same time because you can move so much water off a golf course with pavement. And then if you and it could become a huge problem if you don't have the drains in the subsequent Correct. places with the pavement because then it could rush down there and sit. That's exactly right, Andy. I mean, it's going to run off the pavement and end up on a golf course. So you really want to have a good engineer and a good paving company prior to the events. I uh, I spent some time with the, one of your former uh, mm-hmm. employees, and he talked about how important and critical you were as a manager at a point in his career. And one of the words he used was autonomy. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you approach, you know, you, you obviously are the director of grounds here at Medina, but then you have three course superintendents. They all have assistant superintendents. I'm, I'm assuming it was a similar way at Oakland Hills, how you go about delegating and empowering your employees. Well, I often joke it's because I, I, I give away power because I have so many outside interests. And if I don't give, give away power, I can't go ride my bike. So that's kind of part of it. But no, I mean, I think that um, it's a recognition, as you and I talked earlier today, it's a recognition that uh, I'm not the smartest person in the room. And if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room, right? So I've always recognized that I've tried to hire people who are better than me. Like, I don't do well at crew meetings. I don't like to do it. I'm uncomfortable in doing it. I just don't like to give up. So I have always, the best superintendents who work for me are better at crew meetings, Right. So I've always tried to hire organized people who are organized and efficient, clean and professional. Are and, you organized? Uh, I think I have a reputation of being organized. But if you if you went into my office, you wouldn't say that. No, I I try to be, but I, I'm a procrastinator. That's one of my biggest problems. Um, it's one of mine, too. Yeah, it's just <laughs> I, I, I've suffered from it. Um, but no, I think I think, you know, early in our career, and you're probably at this stage. We think about accomplishment, right? The next rung on the ladder, the next big job title. I got to move from Medina to France, and then I got to get Oakland Hills, and I got to do the tournaments, and I got to make more money, and I got to get the big job title, and I got to become a master greenkeeper, and I got to become certified. And it's all about accomplishment. And then I think as we go on, we realize it's not about accomplishment, it's about contribution. You know, and the the perfect scenario and what I try to teach the young guys is the perfect scenario is the marriage between those two. If you can learn early on that you can accomplish things and also contribute to others at the same time, then you've reached nirvana. So the autonomy thing comes from trying to help these kids learn. The only way you're going to learn is if you get thrown in the deep end. And But there's a safety line, right? I got the life preserver for you. I got the ring. You're going to go in the deep end. I'm going to watch and make sure you don't kill anything. Nobody kill on any grass. But there's a lot of leeway of what you can do, right? In turf management, there's like a hundred ways from get to point A to point B, and your way might be better. So let's let's let these young kids come in here. They graduate from college. They automatically assume that everything you're doing is wrong, right? Because what they're doing in the book 
is completely different than what you're doing in the field. They bear no resemblance whatsoever to each other. And uh, if you've got the patience and you can keep your ego in check to understand that and let them come in and push the boundaries and give them some rope and let them fail along the way, the learning curve is just ginormous. And then you take advantage of that, right? The first year they're learning. The second year they're getting their groove. The third year, boom, they take off. And there's something about letting somebody go do their thing and then when they when they might make a mistake is the best learning experiences oh, for, for 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 me too right so because i can watch what they're doing and i'm in my head i'm thinking well i've already tried that 10 times but i'm gonna let him go do it because i know it's gonna fail but i'll let him do it <laughs> and then he'll tweak it somehow whatever he's doing and i'll think to myself oh that's a pretty good idea let's do it that way all of our job descriptions that i have are a function of it's the same form as I had here. I've just kept them over the years. But the same job description I use today is what I started with in the beginning of my career. It's just been tweaked by every assistant, every intern, every superintendent. So, well, that doesn't work here. Let's change that a little bit. So I, I think, you know, you get better if you let people push the envelope a little bit. As long as they don't, you know, you got to keep them corralled, right? You got to keep the Mustangs in the corral for the most part. But... Uh, if you hire really good people who have good intentions, who uh, care about others, who respect others, who care about doing a good job, who have a good attitude, you're, you know, you're op- the culture that you're going to create is like really, 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 really good. I, 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 you know, I don't, I, when I hire them, I don't really care about the turf science bit of it. That's like super easy. Like the science is super easy. You're trying to hire a good person. You know, it, 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 so there's two things, right? There's, there's, can they do the job and are they willing to do the job? If they can do the job and they're not willing, that's like, a, that's like a path for failure. You're never going to succeed. But if they're willing to do the job, but they can't yet, I can teach them. I can teach them to do the job, but I can't teach a good attitude. I imagine one of the most fulfilling parts of your career has been like you essentially it's people always talk about coach K's you know coaching tree in college basketball and how it's and you yourself have developed almost like a superintendent's tree where you know so many people that have worked with with you um for you now have their own golf course and they're all over the country yeah yeah it's really You know, it's one of the, it's, it's, it's the single most rewarding thing that I do, right, is to stay in touch with these guys. And uh, we share, some, I text with a few of them, the ones that I'm closest with, and we have a really good time te- texting back and forth. And it's, it's the single most, by far, rewarding thing in my career. It's not about the events. It's not about the big job title. It's not about any of that. It's about the people that have worked for me and the sacrifices they made to make me better. You know, I learned, and I, I continue to learn from them. They're really good superintendents, many of them in the Chicago area. And I learned so much from them, not just about turf, but about life. And uh, we get together every year, try to at the conference and have a little happy hour cocktail party. And it is just, I think if you stick around long enough, the numbers start to grow of people who you've worked with and who've worked for you. But yeah, it's, it's, it's like so much pleasure to see them. And now some of them, you know, their kids are getting ready to go to college. So I know, I know some of their kids now. And so it's just, it's just been, 
that's just been great. That part of it. With, with a huge staff, obviously, um, this, what we, the entire world's been dealing with the last few months has been extraordinarily difficult. What, with the coronavirus and a large staff, you know, working out of a confined area, what, what have you, how have you had to adjust the way you guys work? Well, I mean, logistically, as, as you know, it's just, it's just really, really, really complicated, you know, to, to just to, to mitigate the risk is all you're trying to do is just mitigate the risk, knowing that you can't eliminate it entirely. So we have three shifts running right now, soon to add a fourth um, start time. So we have guys coming at 5.30 and then 6.15 and then 7 and then 7.30. Um, and, you know, the, just we, we try to maintain social distancing when they show up in the shop yard so nobody has access to the building unless they get walked in and then they're cleaned behind them. Everybody has their own cart. Everybody has their own tools. We have three guys that just work at the shop all day. That's all they do is clean and disinfect and organize. Nobody can use a time clock, so we have to manually write down everybody's time. Um, I'm just trying to eliminate the touches and keeping our risk level down, knowing that if you have 55 people, you know, it's tough to keep keep them apart, you know, so it puts pressure on the whole operation. And, you know, as a leader and a manager, our single most important thing is not the grass. It's about everybody's health, right? You want everybody to be safe. And, you know, unfortunately, two weeks ago, we had, we had a death on the crew, not related to the virus, but for another reason. Um, in fact, two weeks ago today, we lost a guy who on, on his fourth day. At work, he's a retired guy, Lance. He, you know, one, always wanted to work at Medina, golfer since he was the age of eight, and he passed away uh, on site. And um, so it's your worst nightmare. You want everybody to be safe. But knowing that, you know, we also have a responsibility to keep everybody employed. You know, we don't maintain the golf course. We don't have a business. So we have to keep the place maintained at some level. And to keep everybody employed, because that obviously is impacts their health. I mean, there's physical health and there's financial health and emotional health. So it's been a real challenge. And the main thing is, is not to get the staff numbers too high. So we're going to be running all year. We'll be running 15 or 20 people short just because of that. It just becomes unmanageable. Mm -hmm. It's got to be one of the biggest challenges that you face in your career. Safety? Yeah. Just Oh, no question. I mean, I mean, I mean. Every day, you know, every day you're you're thinking about you know where's where's my risk today? Has everybody got their goggles on? Because you just don't want anybody to get hurt. I mean, you forget the business part of it. You just don't want to be in charge of an operation where somebody's going to get hurt, right? It's a, you don't want to carry that with you. You want them to be safe. How do you use the time when there wasn't golf? Because Illinois obviously was one of the last states to come out, and you essentially got all of April to wear no golf, where usually you're. Well, starting to get the first uh, your first rush of golf. Well, we we're a little bit lucky here in Chicago because it was cool, and we had some hard frost, so it kept the grass in check. We didn't fertilize anything, so no fertility, and then uh, used growth regulators where we could and got those applications out. And then there were a few days where I was the only one here with uh, our head mechanic Brian. Uh, it was just the two of us, and a couple of days I was the only person on the entire property. Um, 
kind of had to be a kind of cool in a weird way. It was. It was <laughs> not, pretty neat. I not walked. like the not the best circumstance, but no, I made sure I walked. To be... I made sure I walked those couple of days because I thought, well, I got six hundred and fifty acres to myself today, so I want to go out and walk and see what's going on. Um, but yeah, just trying to keep the grass on in check so that we when we did get permission to go out and do something and get some guys in. But there were a lot of days we had anybody here. Just kept them home, and then we just started slowly. You know, full-time guys come in, just those 10, get done what we could get done, and then just slowly ramp up five guys at a time as the grass, you know, try to match the staffing with the grass growth. I imagine it established, like, your priorities, right? Which, what you Oh, with every, as you know, Andy, with every crisis, this is so good for the assistants and superintendents, particularly at a place like this, because a couple of them come from high-end clubs, right? The Chicago Golf Club or these top clubs where we recruit them from and they've been, where budgets aren't, I, I always, I always, budgets are never unlimited because whenever there's a high budget, it always comes with unlimited expectations as well. So we don't have a high, we don't have an unlimited budget here, but it's bigger than most, Right. So there's a lot of luxuries in that in that in that budget that we do. A lot of products we can buy and a lot of products we can use. If the shovels break, we'll go buy a new shovel. If the cart doesn't break down, we'll buy new this or that, right? Because there, there's some luxuries there that come with that. Um, but during a time like this, as just like 08 and 09, you learn to be efficient. Right? You learn to get by with less. I mean, we've basically cut supplies to zero right now. We're not buying supplies. If you don't need it, you don't get it. So you have a tendency to make sure that every shovel gets put away gets put away every night yeah. right and it gets cleaned and it gets put away because you're not getting another one if you're the manager right so it teaches some really good habits i think for these guys because when they leave here they're not going to go to a club with these kind of resources they're just not and they're going to have to learn to be efficient they're going to have to learn to manually keep time of of the hours right so i think it's a wonderful opportunity for them to learn how to be efficient and get by with less and they're going to take those lessons with them I think that's I think that's going to be the case across like a lot of professions is people are going to learn to be better at their job by you know necessity but you know you have to approach it so differently with limited staff all of a sudden you really start to understand and hopefully I think like the the big other thing would be that golfers also on their side start to understand you know a little bit of imperfections okay is okay um, a little bit of dollar spot isn't going to bother anybody yeah right and no i completely agree with you and you know do you really need to be filling every single divot every single day maybe maybe not maybe that's money you don't need to spend do all the bunkers need to be raked every day we haven't had one complaint and we're raking bunkers. We try to rake one bunk, one one golf course a day. Try, but the rain has been difficult. Um, and no bunker rakes. Now we're getting a lot less play. Right, there's a yeah. lot less play. Um, and it's members only, so they're going to tend to take care of the golf course a little bit better. But uh, we haven't had any complaints about bunkers at all. It'll be interesting. I, we we were talking before about the long term effects of this, but I think for golf it could be a really good thing. I I, I do too, and I think um. We'll find it. We'll find a normal again. We'll go back to many of the things we did. But um, I just I think it's good for the kids that work here to see that there are some luxuries here on a four point five million dollar budget. There's some luxuries in there. Yeah. Do we need them all, or could we take that money and reallocate it to something else that makes more sense? Right. Because we're trying new things. So, like for instance, 
we're moving the triplex that we would that we would mow. We're mowing tees with triplexes now instead of hand mowing, right? The, the mem- members probably don't know this until they listen to this pop- podcast, right? We typically hand mow those. We hand mow approaches out to the first sprinkler head. Well, we can't do that right now. We don't have the bodies. So I think more triplex mowing right up next to the green is save, save some bodies. These are efficiencies that these kids will take with them when they leave. The members will pick up on. Do we need to have all this all this hand mowing that we're doing everywhere? And, you know, I've, I've, I've been around now long enough to know that I know a lot of superintendents still with small operations where they have to be out working themselves, changing cups. They'll take the triplex out. And the back of the triplex, the greens mower, is a trailer. And on the trailer, he's got a hose, all the cup setting tools he needs. So he's driving that triplex out. You unhook the trailer at the green, mow the green with the triplex, get your cup setter out, change the cup, change your tea markers, empty the garbage. The trailer's got a garbage basket in it too. And you move on to the next one. Yeah. One Efficient. guy. Efficiency. Well, that's the thing is constraints often are the, you know, you're going to become way more efficient if you if you have to be. Right. If you got no choice, you'll be efficient. Yeah. So I think it's good for me as, as or the leader, if you're the superintendent, the leader of your department or the head of your department, you have to constantly be looking at efficiencies because it's how much blood can you squeeze out of the turnip. Right. How can I be more efficient? You know, how can we um, teach the kids that if you can, it doesn't sound like a lot, but if you can change one little thing and save five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, Right. Or five dollars, but you can find a hundred of those things. Now you're over time. I'm talking, about, you know, over time, constantly be looking at efficiencies. You know, we just and teach that culture. Teach them to constantly be thinking about the efficiencies and how can I get better and how can I save five little minutes? Is it a better screwdriver? Is it a better light bulb? And we just found one last week, and they got all excited because we found a new valve for the for for. A, for a, a big tote has product in it, one of the products we sprays, but the valve was leaky. So we poked around to find a new valve that, that changed the way, simply the delivery system of how we got that product from that 250-gallon tote mm-hmm. into the spray tank, and it saved 15 minutes by doing that. And product, probably. If it was save the product, and most importantly, save their stress level. Because they're rushing around and they're standing there waiting to fill this product into the tank, and their stress level went down. But that comes from constantly, you know, constant process improvement, constantly trying to improve the process that you're using, and never accepting it as as the best way. And you'll slowly and slowly and slowly get better, more and, efficient, cheaper. and watching people fail at trying to and, improve the process. And, watch, your and watching favorite people thing fail is stand back and say, "I know this isn't going to work, but I'll let him do it, and he'll work through it." But what's fun too? You're talking about the guys who used to work for me. What is really fun and rewarding is the phone call you'll get after they've been gone from you for like, oh, I don't know, they've been a superintendent for five or six years, and you'll run into them when they'll call you, and they're going, eh. Yeah, you were right about that. <laughs> Whatever it is, see, I know, I know, I know, I was right. You just had to get to it yourself. You'll be, it'll be all right. So then, when you save up all that stuff over the course of the year, you you know, then you might have the budget to buy a machine that fixes everything up for make solves another huge problem. Well, that's right. It's not about necessarily giving money back, but that and that's okay to do that if you if you if you want to do that. But it's about taking that that little bit of savings, that little bit piggy bank you save from the efficiencies and, and doing an extra cookout 
a year or, or a new piece of furniture in the lobby or uh, new radios or a, a better uniform for the staff the following year. I mean, there's just so many things you can roll that money back into, and you're just constantly trying to get just a little bit better. You don't have to make these huge improvements. You just got to get a little bit better every day, just a little bit. And over time, you know, the uh, the game will get better. Yeah. Right. This all this all goes back to the game will get better. Yeah. Totally. Well, hey, Steve, thank you very much for yeah, well, coming on. For... This was uh this was fun and uh it was it was a much deeper chat than just golf. Yeah, you know, no, it's fun. always well, as I try to tell anybody who'll listen, it's you know, on my end of the business as a greenkeeper, it's not about the grass. It just it isn't about the grass. It's about everything else but the grass. And that might be the end product of what we do and the product that we provide, but it's about so much more. 